0: Welcome back to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore, and this is Reality Asserts Itself with Michael Ratner. Now joining us in the studio is Michael, who's president emeritus at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York, chaired the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin. He's the WikiLeaks' Julian Assange's American lawyer, and I think it's probably safe to say one of the leading, if not the leading, radical human rights lawyers in the country. Thanks for joining Thank us again. You.
1: Thank you for that nice compliment, Paul.
0: <laughs> oh, more, more, I think it will be clear from this series yeah. and everything else, more, more than deserved. Uh, so, we're going to pick up the story in 1966. Uh, you go to Columbia, so pick things up from there.
1: I go to Columbia Law School. My father's dead already. There's still a business in Cleveland. I, I don't want to go back to Cleveland. I don't want to go into business. I go to law school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I worked like a dog the first year at Columbia Law School, you know, upper really upper-middle-class law school, you'd have to say. It had 300 people. 290, 270 had to be white males. Um, it had 10 women, probably six African-Americans. I mean, just maybe 10. I mean, it was, these were, these were incredible institutions. And are,
0: are, are Jewish students just starting to break in around that time? At
1: that time I don't think, at Columbia at least, it was a problem. Um, I, I don't know, but I, I think by, before then it was a problem. At colleges, it was still a problem, like Yale and stuff like that in the 60s. Um, but but by, the, by the graduate level of at least Columbia Law School, it seemed to be pretty open. I don't know, but I think so.
0: Give us a feel for 1966-'67, that, that year at Columbia.
1: It's unimaginable, actually, because it's all male, almost. It's all white, um, with very few exceptions, you know. And you had Saturday classes, and they had just abolished wearing ties and jackets to class. He still sort of wore a jacket. And there wasn't anybody but a white professor, nobody. There was no women professors, no black professors, nothing. This was an institution that was serving the ruling elites of the country, and particularly in this case Columbia, Wall Street, um, and the big firms feeding in. There were, no, there were no human rights classes, no civil rights classes, nothing. This was like, I mean, a total blank. At the same time, for some reason, I decided to work hard. I got very involved in just doing all the kit work. You know, did fine, um, and in th- this this little
0: white oasis for training new members of the ruling class, around it is a world where there's a Vietnam War, a rising civil rights movement, national liberation
1: movements. Uh, so right, and in it's in on the edge of Harlem. I mean, Columbia li- is 116th Street, Harlem. You know, 125th Street in Manhattan. But you're making a very good point. It's, so it has a really a black community in lar- encompassed part of the university. And then the university itself is doing war research to help with the Vietnam War, um, and it's doing other things. But that's, you know, you go to law school, you just, it's very hard law school in the sense that it's a lot of work, and you just have your nose in the books. I never, I didn't do anything. I just worked all the time. And after a year at Columbia, I decided to take the year off, because I was just exhausted from it, I think.
0: Just one thing. In that year when you go to Columbia, if you had to imagine where you would be five or ten years later, would you have
1: thought Wall Street, or are you already thinking some other kind of law? I was thinking there was a, there was a place to, a liberal law firm, whatever that meant. I, I, you know, I mean, some law, that was still times hard for Jewish people to get jobs in certain law firms. I mean, you know, I just, there was a number. But there were, by that time, it was opening up. So I thought liberal law firm, there was such a thing, I thought. And there were, supposedly, but they wouldn't be liberal by any my standards or yours today, probably. But that's what I thought through the first year, that I would go to a liberal law firm. All right. So you take
0: a year off, and you come to Baltimore, where we are now.
1: Right. I take a year off, and I get a job um, at the Legal Defense Fund, which was uh, the legal arm of the NAACP at the time. It was separated out. And I, I did a lot of work at Legal Defense Fund. I knew some of the real heroes of the civil rights movement. I mean, they were represented you Muhammad Ali, they were, you know, it was a, I saw Arthur Ashe there. I mean, it was, like, pretty incredible. I mean, you know, the Legal Defense Fund wasn't radical, but it was representing, you know, at least in large, you know, some very important African-American cases and figures. So this is now 68. This is 67, 68. So what does Baltimore look like well, then? Well, I remember when I got off the train station today, it looked exactly the same. The wooden benches are there. I got off on a cold, rainy night. A civil rights lawyer picked me up, worked with the Legal Defense Fund. Um, and I, I, I don't remember that much. It was a few weeks I spent here, and I, my job was to get the statistics and have meetings with the civil rights lawyer, be his assistant, on a desegregation case. Because I don't remember the two counties—maybe Prince George's and Arundel—are those two counties? And one was all-white county, and one was primarily black county. And the schools, of course, reflected the nature of, of the living of the living. And the, and the Legal Defense Fund wanted to try and integrate those schools. So you'd have black kids going to white schools and white kids going to black schools. Um, and that was a big thing of the Legal Defense Fund during that period, was school desegregation. And my job was just getting the statistics, going to the meetings, and getting that done. So I'm here about three weeks. I'm living maybe partly at the civil rights lawyer's house, partly I get a motel room that they give me. And then King is, King is murdered, uh, Martin Luther King is murdered. Um, and at that point, I'm in the room, and um, in my hotel room here, a motel room, and the whole city of Baltimore explodes. I mean, I, I and, and I was confined to that hotel room for at least four days, as I recall, eating those little things out of the machine, my favorite little cheese crackers. But it was a serious business. There were tanks, troop carriers going through the streets of Baltimore. It was utterly intense um, after 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 King's murder, um, and that was really the end of my adventure, if you want to call it that, in Baltimore. I, I got out of here eventually, and I still worked for the Legal Defense Fund. I went back up to New York, where their office was at Columbus Circle.
0: Just in terms of those days, uh, what did it mean for you in terms of your understanding of America? I mean, you were going to Columbia, this question. insulated place. Yeah. Now, I mean, just frankly, going from New York to Baltimore is a, is a, is a trip, but yeah. going from Columbia to Baltimore on fire is a big trip.
1: Right. But, of course, you know, it's interesting. When I think about it now, you heard know, here I'd gone from Columbia to the Legal Defense Fund, and the Legal Defense Fund was mixed, but it was probably majority black then. Um, so I started to work with African-Americans in a different way than I had really in my whole life um, as, as as colleagues that I hadn't had growing up. Um, and then I come to Baltimore, and, of course, I who am I meeting with? I'm not meeting with the white parents, you know, who want to integrate the schools. I'm meeting with black parents. Um, And so that's already a big shift, and I'm in living in, you know, black neighborhoods. It's a very, very big, very big change for me. Um, But one that I I, I didn't, I don't think I was so conscious of it at the time. I'm conscious of it now that we're talking about it, Um, but I I wasn't conscious of it now. But King's death, um, I think that was, you know, like, it was one of the most depressing moments of, of my, personally, that I felt. I mean, I was just destroyed by it just destroyed. I mean, you know, I didn't want to leave the hotel room. You know, we just wanted to cry. We didn't want to leave the hotel room. And it it was shattering. It was just shattering. I mean, I I don't know how to express it. I just remember it. It was just, And it was was bad weather in Baltimore then, I think, for some reason. It was a rainy, bad couple of days with these troop carriers going through the streets. And here I was there to try and, you know, desegregate a little bit. Um, So it was a pretty devastating. And then I went up to New York after that. I went back to the Legal Defense Fund. And then um, I went up to Columbia. And again, I was, you have to understand, I, was probably, I probably stayed friends with some of my friends up at Columbia. Um, but um, when I went up to Columbia, all hell had erupted at Columbia. I mean, there, were, there had been a series of demonstrations while I was, not while I was there, but the, that year of 67, 68, around the Vietnam War. Um, and around. Um, and, and it was the Vietnam War. There was a the university doing research on the Vietnam War. And then there was the university plan to build a gym, a big new gym on the edge of the university on, in Morningside Heights. You go to Morningside Heights and you go down the hill. It's an African-American community at the base, and up at the top it's Columbia and, you know, a more integrated or white community almost, really. And the gym was going to be opened with a black door for the entrance, not a black door, yeah, a black door, a door for African-Americans to go through who were coming from Morningside Heights. But the Columbia kids would go through a door from their campus, a white door, essentially. So, I mean, you, 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 I wish you could make this stuff up. Uh, but that's what the university actually planned. So that became another big bone of contention at, at, at Columbia, along with the war. And, of course, all these kids are subject to the draft one way or another, all of us, in some, in some way. I'm in school, and I, had a, I got a year off, I got a deferment for a year. Uh, to work, but basically we're all subject to the draft. So this is also raising all the issues on Vietnam. And it's a civil rights movement, and so King has been shot three weeks before, or two weeks before. And so what happens is there's a s- Just
0: one sec. How meaningful was King and King's message, King's speeches? I mean, how much did that
1: shape your view of the world? You know, I was, it was very important to me, um, extremely important. I mean, the, the pictures of happened in the south of Bull Connor, um, was very important, certainly by 68. Um, 67, I was so immersed in my books, and this is a terrible story. 67, I'm working so hard uh, that I actually don't, I'm not even aware that King is giving my favorite single speech that he's ever given, the Riverside speech. Um, when he says when he comes out against the Vietnam War, we will not be sil- we cannot be silent. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. And, you know, I reread it every year. And that's given across the street from Columbia Law School, or Columbia. And I wasn't even aware of it. I was, work, I was so immersed in, in law school. Um, but certainly, by as that, I worked at the Legal Defense Fund, then I'm completely involved. They represented King. I'm completely involved in, 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 in the, uh, in the black, liber- black civil rights movement, moving to black liberation movement uh, at that point, at least with people who are deeply involved. And those are the cases that I'm working on. And King was crucial. In fact, when King was, I remember the day, I was in, I was in my office at the Legal Defense Fund, and they were working on the Poor People's March on Washington, which was a King-initiated effort, um, which was going to be a tent city built on the mall. Um, of, of both whites and blacks um, demanding, you know, the war against poverty, demanding that things be done about the impoverishment of people. And I, re- and I had a big button you know, that said, you know, March on Washington, um, Poor People's March. And then I remember they just made a decision to continue the march even after King, uh, King was murdered. Um, so it was a, it was, King was by this point quite important to me. Uh, you know even Malcolm I, I was aware of during this you know I went as I said I went to Brandeis before, and they had Malcolm X as a speaker um, and I re- it was extraordinary I mean I had never heard anything like that in my entire life um, you know that about you know black history and what it meant in Africa uh, and what what had done with what, what blacks had done in Africa and their and the culture and the society I, I was just completely amazed by it and when I look at that speech at This is Brandeis having Malcolm X. And I look at what goes on today. When you want to put on an anti-Zionist speaker at a university, and they say that speaker has to be coupled with a Zionist, and I said to myself, what are they talking about? They put Malcolm X on at Brandeis, uh, and there was nobody saying, oh, he's dead wrong about African-Americans, he's dead wrong about black history, nothing like that. So, so these are all influences that, that and obviously, that Malcolm X speech, I, I still remember it. So it obviously was something so striking to me um, that that was the case. So you go back to
0: New York, you're back at Columbia, and you were saying things were exploding.
1: There had been a series while I was in the South, or Baltimore I considered the South for me coming from <laughs> New York, um, but they were exploding. And there had been demonstrations and marches and oh, lots, lots of, but the big issues were the gym, Vietnam War, civil rights movement, really. Um, and, and they'd taken over, and, and students had taken over the buildings. Um, and I got there right toward the tail end of it. And there was, it was thousands of students on the campuses. There were no classes or anything. Everybody was out there. And then the group had, had formed what they call a majority coalition, which was the ant- against the people who'd taken over the buildings or against the supporters of the people. And they called themselves the Majority Coalition. In my class, and this shows you what Columbia was like, my class, Governor George Pataki, um, was in that. I knew him, knew him then. He was in the Majority Coalition, a very conservative Republican governor of New York. Uh, he was in that. I was just there the last couple of days, and my, some of my very few law students were in the buildings, because that was high risk, um, because they, you have to go through a character committee as a lawyer, and if you have they check, if you have bad things in your record, you know, you don't become a lawyer. But there were maybe half a dozen law students who went into the buildings. Um, and I was there the night that they actually said they were going to evacuate the buildings, uh, not evacuate, bust the buildings, that the cops were going to come on campus. And we heard the cops were going to come on campus. And what I did then is I formed a group with about 20 people, and we stood in front of the door to Low Library, which is where a lot of the people were, were in. Um, And I just stood there with our arms locked singing We Shall Overcome. And these cops that were the size of giants, like, you know, longshoremen cops, just charged our line. It's midnight, 12-1-2, charged our line, billy clubs flying, and just picked us up, threw us on the ground, and beat us, blood everywhere, Uh, me, everybody. I mean, this was, you got out of that, and and they were going, and the buildings were barricaded, a lot of them, et cetera. There was blood everywhere on the campus at 3 or 4 in the morning, everywhere, thousands of cops, or at least hundreds of cops. It was one of the most dramatic nights I've ever lived through. And, and what you realize from a night like that is here these, first, we, 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 in some way this, there was a certain privilege, although I, I don't recall it well enough, but the black students had a separate building. I'm not sure they were busted in that way, understanding maybe better than the whites what happens when cops come in with their clubs flying. I don't want to character because there's been a lot of writing on this. I just don't recall this whole thing perfectly. But well, you thought
0: white, privileged Columbia students would be somewhat immune from this kind of attack.
1: We said to ourselves, these are these are the kind of things that happen in the South. These don't happen to white upper-middle-class universities. I and mean, that was, you know, and it happened. Uh, and you recognize at that point. Um, a lot. But you recognize, first of all, an administrator who then got forced out the president of the university who makes a decision to put cops onto a campus is changing the dynamics forever and in a negative way. He's first radicalizing a huge number of people. Um, My generation at that university was radicalized uh, by that period, but by that night in particular. And a lot of us who came out of that just never never looked back on going to law firms or capitalism or anything like that. Uh, some people obviously shifted, and you have to make a living and a family and all that. Um, but it, but was it, that it was that for you. It was that for me. At that point I had been, I'd actually interviewed for a, a liberal law firm in Washington who wanted me very much. And after this it was done, just done. Um, and um, so that, that was really a, a seminal event By in Dunne, my life. You needed to be involved in something transformative. Yes. I was no longer going to be a lawyer working for a, a big law firm. And, and what, it, what it did to the law school is extraordinary. I mean, then we had, you know, the law school at that point had no classes. Uh, there was a liberation school set up during the summer. It's hard to imagine all this. Um, the um, in 1970, there was the, what they call, the sideshow, the bombing of Cambodia, uh, in part of the Vietnam War and the Nixon bombing Cambodia. At that point, there's another huge demonstration goes out. Um, again, the, law sc- every, the schools close. So basically from, af- from after 68, you could actually go through law school without having to go to classes, essentially, with no grades um, for lots of it. And they actually put me on the appointments committee. Um, Because I had good grades, and they figured, okay, that I wasn't in a building because I happened to be away, and boom, um, they put me on the appointments committee, and all of a sudden, there's a shift. There's shift around women starting. Shift around. African-Americans, at least at Columbia beginning. And, of course, it's you know it's still a, it's a long story about what it's become and what it is now. Not so good at all. No, anymore. but you can but
0: see uh, the ripple effect when a mass movement is at such a height.
1: It's amazing. The I ripple think, effect yeah. of the power of that movement. It's yeah. incredible. I mean, it was something like, you know, you want it. My, my children used to say to me, they're so envious of me, because I got to live through this movement, this radicalizing moment in American history for a lot of us. And it was it was it was It was quite extraordinary, and from then on, I went to clerk for the only black woman federal judge in the United States, Constance Baker motley. an amazing story, and I'll just give one vignette about her i mean lots of lots of great stories about her, but I finally, after she died, and I was stupid for not staying close to her as, as she went on with her life, she liked me a lot and always wanted to see me. She would just always give me cases I had to do for. You know, losing habeas corpus cases that I just had. So I, I didn't see her that much. But when I read her autobiography, she was uh, born in New Haven, and her father was born in, I guess, Nevis or St. Kitts, Nevis in the Caribbean. Her father had been a shoe-shine boy at the Yale club. She had no money to go to college. Some I, some well-off man saw that she was smart and paid for her to go to college. When I opened her book and I read it, I was so moved. Her opening chapter is there's always going to be racism in this country. Um, I understand that but the bigger problem is going to be class. I almost dropped, because despite our closeness at certain periods, we'd never had that political discussion. Um, and, of course, I kicked myself. What the heck was I thinking here? Anyway. And she became, she was a federal judge. Oh, she was a federal judge. She was, you know, really, really a, remar- a remarkable woman. She was supposed to go to the circuit court, the next court up. Um, it was nine white men on the circuit court. I mean, Thurgood Marshall had been there shortly before he went to the Supreme Court. And basically they said, we're not taking her. And, they, and, they, and whoever was going to nominate her, John, Johnson or whatever president, uh, wasn't able to do it. And she argued 10, ten cases in the Supreme Court. She won nine of them. And yet, they, yet people in, in that court uh, considered her not smart. And you know, sometimes I had to bring her lunch, um, go to the cafeteria and get it for her. And the reason for that is no one would sit with her. People wouldn't sit with her. when she was, it's, I mean, it brings tears to my eyes, when she was extraordinary.
0: Okay. We're going continue, to continue this in the next part of our interview on Reality Asserts Itself with Michael Ratner.